You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me know. Bubbles there. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. You have no style. You Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Over the last three weeks, we went over some quick histories of film. Now it's time to dive in a little bit deeper. This week, and for the next five weeks, we're going into the histories of the Big Five studios of Hollywood's golden age. The Big Five were just that. The five largest studios with the highest influence and biggest output. Four of the five studios we're going to cover had left their New York locale for the Golden State for a myriad of reasons, including escaping the clutches of a trust that had been founded by Thomas Edison in an attempt to take control of America's film production pipeline. This, coupled with the need for a headquarters with more reliable weather, landed many studios in Los Angeles. Away from the clutches of Edison's MPPC, the studios created their own oligopoly to regulate their own films. As explained in A Brief History of Film Part 1, this allowed the studios to control every aspect of the movies they released from script to screen. Over the next five weeks, we'll be covering the histories of Paramount Pictures, MGM, Fox, Warner Brothers, and RKO. With each episode, we'll start at the very beginning, focusing mostly on the reigns of the studio's original owners, but we will cover everything up to the modern day. The Big Five and their younger siblings, the Little Three, Universal, Columbia, and United Artists, have had their fates intertwined as the decades have progressed. They have seen periods of immense feast, tremendous famine, and times when it seemed like they would not be able to carry on. Today, seven of these eight studios are still making movies, as they have since the early 20th century. This week, we'll be covering the oldest of the Big Five, Paramount Pictures, which also happens to be the fifth oldest surviving film studio in the world, and the only of the Hollywood studios to still have its headquarters in Hollywood proper. Today, we will cover the history of the studio, as well as some of its most prominent and enduring players. Over the last 108 years, Paramount has expanded its empire to cover many, many different business practices that we could spend additional hours going over. But for the purposes of this podcast, we're going to focus on the film side of it all. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Orphaned from a young age, Austro-Hungarian Adolf Zucker immigrated to the U.S. at the age of 15 
in search of his American dream. He spent his early years cutting his teeth as a furniture upholsterer in New York City, eventually starting his own successful fur business. Zucker didn't have a romantic entry into the motion picture business, believing that the pictures were merely a passing novelty. But in 1903, his cousin Max Goldstein approached him in the hopes that he might provide the finances for a chain of Nickelodeons in which Goldstein wished to invest. Zucker gave the pictures a second chance, this time through the eyes of a businessman, and saw the popularity it had with the working classes, and therefore the money-making potential. Goldstein and Zucker were in business. Starting with Nickelodeons, they eventually expanded their empire with vaudeville houses up and down the East Coast. Observing the limited appeal of the motion picture to the upper classes, who preferred live theater, Zucker wanted to do more than just exhibit pictures. He wanted to make them. With the desire to create highbrow entertainment to attract his desired clientele, Zucker believed the best way to achieve this was to film famous players in famous plays and distribute them to the masses. In June of 1912, he, with business partners Daniel and Charles Frommen, founded the famous Players Film Company, the earliest iteration of Paramount Pictures. Their early films would include world-renowned theater phenom Sarah Bernhardt, as well as theater veterans slash soon-to-be movie stars Mary Pickford and John Barrymore. Edwin S. Porter, whose film The Great Train Robbery Zucker would claim he'd seen thousands of times, directed The Count of Monte Cristo and The Neighbor's Wife, both in 1913, for The Young Company. Around the same time, aspiring producer, former vaudeville performer, and the only native Californian to eventually build the Hollywood film industry, Jesse L. Lasky started his own film company, Lasky Feature Play Company, in November 1913, with money borrowed from his brother-in-law, Samuel Goldfish, later Samuel Goldwyn. The company's first employee was an inexperienced but incredibly ambitious young man by the name of Cecil B. DeMille. Most films were still being shot in New York at this time, with few exceptions, but DeMille convinced the partners to shoot their upcoming Western film in the West. An incredibly expensive move, but one they decided was worth the financial risk. Depending on whether you would like to believe DeMille's story, or the surviving train ticket for what happened next is up to you. According to DeMille, the trio decided to shoot in Arizona, but upon DeMille's arrival, he found Arizona to be too rainy, green, and forested, so he rode the rails the rest of the way to California, wiring Lasky that he had found a barn to rent for production for $75 a month. This, quote, barn was more of a small studio located on Selma and Vine, which became the first Hollywood home for what would soon be known as Paramount Pictures. The surviving train tickets, however, were issued for a trip to Los Angeles, not Flagstaff, Arizona, as DeMille had claimed. Years later, DeMille would, however, admit that some elements of the story were partially fabricated for publicity. The Journey's resulting film, 1914's The Squaw Man, became the first feature film to be shot entirely in Hollywood. By early 1914, Lasky Feature Play Company and Famous Players Film Company had started releasing their films via newly founded distributor 
Paramount Pictures Corporation, with Lasky and Zucker both joining the board. Paramount would become the first successful nationwide distributor of films, before distribution had been organized by region. Streamlining this process of getting a film to as many eyes as possible while cutting the cost for producers, it didn't take long for Zucker and Lasky to realize that they could be making significantly more cash if the production, distribution, and exhibition of films were merged. By July 13, 1916, Zucker had acquired enough stock in Paramount to oust William Wadsworth Hodkinson, the founder of Paramount and the man who created the Mountain logo that emblazons Paramount Films to this day, from his own company, and replaced him with Hiram Abrams, a member of the board from whom Zucker had bought several shares. Six days later, Famous Players, Lasky Features, and Paramount merged to form Famous Players Lasky, with Zucker as president, Lasky as VP, Goldfish as CEO, Abrams overseeing distribution, and DeMille overseeing production. Goldfish would leave the company not long after to start up his own production company with new business partner Edgar Selwyn, Goldwyn Pictures. Do you recall the day when we went over to the president for dinner? Yeah. After dinner, we came out and we, you saw your name in electric lights over the Fifth Avenue Theater. Was I frightened, too? Uh, what a thrill <laughs> for you and me both. <laughs> Absolutely. Do you remember the time that, that you wanted me to do a uh, poor little rich girl and I said that I was grown up and too dignified to play a little girl, but you won also, didn't you? Huh? I recall that. Do you also remember when we did Hold Up from Holland, and after you saw the picture during the preview, you said you'd rather pay for the negative than have it released. And I told you that that will be the best picture, best characterization you ever made, and I was right. Do you recall that? Yes, I remember. I'm afraid you were right too long. <laughs> the clip you just heard was of Mary Pickford and Adolf Zucker discussing the early days of her career with famous players Lasky. Zucker knew, from early on, that if he wanted quality films, he would need the star power to go alongside. Zucker signed early stars like Mary Pickford, who would rise to international stardom with the like of 1914's Hearts Adrift. She was the first actress to sign a million-dollar contract and became the most famous actress in the world during the silent era. Known for playing little girl parts in the early days of her career, Pickford was a smart businesswoman who, upon renegotiating her contract with famous players in 1916, managed to gain full authority over the films she starred in, something unheard of in the not-so-distant future. When she decided to leave the studio in 1918, she was offered $250,000 to leave the motion pictures forever. She declined. Zucker would also sign Douglas Fairbanks, who, like his second wife Mary Pickford would, quickly rose to international fame and fortune in films like The Knickerbocker Buckaroo in 1919. The couple, unhappy with the way they were treated within the studio system, along with friend Charlie Chaplin and former mentor D.W. Griffith, would go on to found United Artists in 1919 in order to protect their independence as performers, something they achieved about 35 years before most of their acting colleagues would. Other signees included Rudolph Valentino, 
whom Lasky would moniker the Latin lover. Italian-born Valentino had been frustrated with roles he'd been given at other studios, but found international acclaim at famous players Lasky with films like 1921's The Sheik, in which he would play an Arab man. Valentino would also have a tumultuous relationship with famous players Lasky, going on strike in 1922 over a financial dispute. He wanted to be paid the same as their biggest star, Mary Pickford, who was making $7,000 a week to Valentino's $12.50. The studio eventually caved to Valentino's wishes due to their lack of content after another famous Lasky star, comedian Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, was embroiled in scandal following the death of an actress in his hotel room, destroying not only his reputation, but his career. Despite being acquitted of the charges, Arbuckle's career never recovered. Both Valentino and Arbuckle would die young. Valentino from peritonitis, an inflammation of the tissue that lines the inner wall of the abdomen at 31, after being mistakenly diagnosed with appendicitis when he actually was suffering from gastric ulcers and Arbuckle from a heart attack at the age of 46. Since famous players Lasky had only one true rival on the distribution front, First National, the company could pretty much make up the rules of distribution as they went along. This included the creation and implementation of block booking, a manipulative and now illegal form of film distribution. Essentially, if a theater wanted to show a film featuring some of the A-list talent a studio had to offer, they also had to buy an agreed-upon amount of films to play alongside it. Many times, the theaters didn't know what they were getting and were required to play everything that they were sent by the studios in the agreed-upon time frame. While it rocketed those studios into massive success in the coming decades, and Zucker's distribution pipeline revolutionized the film industry by organizing production, distribution, and exhibition within a single company, it would lead to a lot of trouble with the government in the 1940s. Not eager to share in the spoils, Zucker began ridding himself of his early partners through a variety of means. Most were gone by 1917, including the Frommans, and as previously mentioned, Hodkinson and Goldfish. DeMille left in 1925 after battling with Zucker over the budget of DeMille's epic and biblically expensive The Ten Commandments, not the Charlton Heston one DeMille would remake 30 years later. DeMille went on to a monumentally successful career as an independent producer and director, returning to Paramount for a film here and there throughout the rest of his life. Lasky stayed on until 1932, but was labeled the fall guy for the near collapse of Paramount during the Great Depression. Lasky would go on to have a career at Fox before becoming an independent producer for a few of Mary Pickford's pictures in the 1930s. Lasky died in 1958 and was interned at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, yards away from the current home of the studio he co-founded. Zucker was seemingly quite fond of renaming the studio to reflect internal changes and acquisitions. Famous Players Lasky would be renamed several times. In 1927, it was changed to Paramount Famous Lasky Corporation. Then, Zucker built a chain of nearly 2,000 screens called the Publix Theaters, which prompted yet another company name change, this time to Paramount Publix Corporation in 1930. Since most of the names were fairly short-lived, going forward, we'll call it Paramount as much as possible to avoid confusion. 
By 1927, Paramount was releasing an average of 60 films per year, including the first Academy Award winner for Best Picture, World War I Epic Wings, starring Clara Bow. In addition to the theater company he already owned, Zucker made deals to show all Paramount films at Lowe's Enterprise Theaters. This deal led to a practice still in place today by which a distributor charges the exhibitor a percentage of box office receipts. I couldn't find a reliable source for the number back then, but by modern standards, the movie studio keeps about 60% of box office domestically. Due to their location in outlying neighborhoods, convenient for the middle-class population, it's no surprise Zucker purchased the Balaban and Katz Theater Corporation in 1926. With this merger, Zucker gained the Balaban brothers and their partner Sam Katz, all of whom would make major contributions to Paramount in the years to come. Also in 1926, Zucker purchased a 26-acre facility from Robert Brunton Studios for $1 million, which was located directly next to a cemetery, the home Paramount has to this day. Additionally, Zucker purchased a plot of land in New York City on Broadway and 43rd to build the lavish Paramount Theater and a 39-story office building to go with it. Pardon, ma'am. Did I welcome a stranger to these parts with a shot of liquor? Si, senor. Look out for this hombre, ma'am. He don't mean nothing he says, and he's flat broke. Oh, senor, that's too bad, no? And you? I can toast in rye or bourbon till the sun goes down. Should we start now? Why not? You low-down buzzard, you. Stand off, cow hand. This lady drinks with me. Two rye and one bourbon, Joe. When the Great Depression hit on October 29, 1929, the movie studios and the moguls that led them felt it as well, paramount more than most. Having spent a great deal of money throughout the 20s to buy the previously mentioned properties, when the Depression hit, Paramount had about twice as many theaters as Warner Brothers or Fox, which meant twice the trouble. With the drastic shift in box office returns, Zucker's overexpansion and overvalued stock was blamed for the company's trouble and Paramount found itself in receivership. A reorganization team from the bank managed to keep the company intact, though the Paramount Public's theater chain would go bankrupt in 1935. Somehow, Zucker managed to remain with Paramount while Lasky took the fall for the studio's troubles. In 1936, Barney Balaban would be elected president by the board while Zucker was made chairman of the board. Zucker would reorganize the company once more as Paramount Pictures, Inc. and brought the company back from the brink of bankruptcy. Zucker remained chairman until 1964 when he stepped down and assumed chairman emeritus status, a title he held until his death at the age of 103. An early adapter to sound, Paramount renovated and expanded its Hollywood backlot to be able to accommodate the new technology until the stock market crash slowed this expansion as well. Instead, 
Paramount focused on acquiring new talent. Like many studios at the time, Paramount updated its roster to reflect the need of actors who could perform dialogue. This talent widely came from the radio and theater. The Marx Brothers, Bing Crosby, Clara Bow, Mae West, Marlene Dietrich, Gary Cooper, and Claudette Colbert all proved to be profitable gambles for the studio as their film successes eventually saved Paramount from further ruin. At the helm of their pictures were directors the likes of Joseph von Sternberg, Eric von Stroheim, Ernst Lubitsch, and Billy Wilder. Known for his elegant and sophisticated comedy films, and a style that would eventually be referred to as the Lubitsch Touch, Paramount hired German-born Ernst Lubitsch to churn out highly popular musicals in the early stages of the sound film, including 1929's The Love Parade, Lubitsch's first sound film, and 1931's The Smiling Lieutenant. Originally brought on to save a Frank Lloyd picture, Children of Divorce, Austro-Hungarian director Josef von Sternberg quickly became one of Paramount's top directors. After saving the film, Sternberg was given the opportunity to direct Underworld in 1927, a silent gangster picture. Based on Ben Heck's article on Chicago Gangsters, the film received the first Best Screenplay Oscar. Von Sternberg would successfully transition into the talkies and formed a long collaboration with German actress Marlene Dietrich. Sternberg and Dietrich first met on 1930's The Blue Angel, which earned Dietrich international fame and a contract with Paramount. Over the next five years, von Sternberg and Dietrich would make six films together, typically shot in exotic locales. Von Sternberg's eye for aesthetics is on full display in these films. These films are very personal for von Sternberg, and he enjoyed near free reign to make the films with Dietrich, whom he made into a glamorous yet mysterious femme fatale. Their first Hollywood film, 1930's Morocco, earned Dietrich her first and only Oscar nomination. Made before the Hayes Code went into effect, Dietrich plays a cabaret singer who, in the most famous scene from the film, wears a man's suit and tie and kisses another woman. All of this would be banned by the Hayes Code. Paramount also found great success with cartoons, which were produced by Flesher Studios, who created the likes of Popeye and Betty Boop. In 1939, Popeye was actually more popular than Mickey Mouse. While they did try to expand into features, they were nowhere near as successful as the short films featuring these characters. Paramount would eventually buy and absorb Flesher in 1941 after the brothers stopped talking to one another and renamed it Famous Cartoon Studios. Never as successful as it had been under the management of the brothers, the company would produce cartoons until 1967.
Arnie Balaban, a first-generation American of Jewish immigrant parents, now found himself as the president of Paramount Pictures after being elected by the board in 1936, a role he would have for the next 30 years. Balaban wanted the studio's pictures to be as American as apple pie and to explain the culture and its people to the world at large. Balaban, like Zucker, was more of a businessman and opted to stay in New York away from the bright lights of Hollywood. In 1940, the government had banned block booking and pre-selling, the latter of which was the practice of collecting money for films not yet produced. This caused a sizable reduction in production, which, coupled with World War II, saw a decrease in Paramount's yearly output from about 71 films to a mere 19. Despite this, Paramount found itself making more money than ever with the integrated studio theater pipeline, but not for long. After the war, in 1948, the Federal Trade Commission and Justice Department reopened their investigation on the studio, this time including the other members of the Big Five, MGM, Fox, Warner Brothers, and RKO, eventually culminating in the Supreme Court decision of U.S. versus Paramount Pictures, Inc. The Supreme Court ruled that motion picture studios could not own movie theaters, fracturing Zucker's empire. The theater chain was split away from Paramount Pictures, Inc. and renamed United Paramount Theaters. The studio system, and Hollywood's golden age, was at its end. Sensing the looming competition with television, Balaban made sure Paramount was an early investor. In 1938, the company bought a minority share in a television manufacturing company called Dumont Laboratories, who also owned three television stations. A year later, Paramount purchased a Los Angeles television station and another in Chicago to test the waters of this burgeoning medium. Paramount attempted to expand their stations to other markets, but were denied by the FCC, which capped the ownership of stations to five to avoid monopolies. Due to their shares in Dumont Laboratories and the bad reputation they had earned during the legal fallout of 1948, Paramount was already at their limit. Refusing to relinquish its shares in Dumont, Paramount's growth in television was stunted. In 1958, Paramount sold off its share of Dumont after their investments with the company and with an early form of pay television went nowhere. The two greatest figures in show business, Bing and Danny, as two ex-GIs who form the perfect partnership. Rosemary and Vera Ellen as the sisters who have them in a spin. With Dean Jagger as the unemployed general they take under their wing. Apparently, there's still quite a bit about show business I don't understand. Oh, it'll come to you, sir. Just takes time. We wouldn't be any good as generals. You weren't any good as privates. A wonderful story that will warm your hearts, just as the breathtaking scope of a new screen wonder will widen your eyes. White Christmas in Vista Vision. And you'll fall asleep. Counting your the loss of the theaters had hit Paramount like a freight train. In an attempt to save money, their entire roster of players had to be released from contract. Like many studios of the time, 
Paramount experimented with various mediums to create a spectacle that television could not provide. Theirs was VistaVision, a widescreen format to attract audiences. The first film released in this format was White Christmas in 1954, starring Bing Crosby. And while the reviews for VistaVision was quite positive, few theaters had the capacity to screen the stock, which went vertically through the machine rather than horizontally. This led Paramount to reprint the films they released on VistaVision on standard stock, completely undermining the medium, and the process would be abandoned by 1961. Gather your families and your flocks. We must go with old speakers. Go where? To drown in the sea? How long will the fire hold Pharaoh back? Will it hold? After this day, you shall see his chariots no more. No! You'll be dead under them. The Lord of hosts will do battle for us. Behold his mighty hand. With the studio in decline in the mid-1950s, Cecil B. DeMille returned and gave the studio his biggest career hit with 1956's The Ten Commandments, another VistaVision release and remake of his 1923 picture, the one that made him leave Paramount in the first place. DeMille suffered a heart attack during production of what would be his final film. DeMille died three years after making the Ten Commandments, and like his former business partner, Lasky, DeMille would be interned at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Despite the financial success of the Ten Commandments, Paramount was still struggling and sold their Los Angeles television network in the early 1960s. Next, Paramount sold its New York headquarters with the new owners converting the theater's enchanting interiors into office space. The 3,650-seat theater, with its golden age grandeur, was lost to the ages. Still controlled by Chairman Emeritus Adolf Zucker and current CEO Barney Balaban, with the duo seeing little value in their pre-1948 sound films, Paramount sold off the library to the Music Corporation of America, which later became the parent company to Universal Studios, who own these films to this day. While the studio would have some hits in the 1960s, including Psycho in 1960, Breakfast at Tiffany's in 1961, and Alfie in 1966, these successful pictures couldn't save the studio from the losses from some of its less successful films. For example, how could any of us forget 1961's Hey, Let's Twist. A major problem appeared to be thus. Zucker and Balaban, born in 1873 and 1888 respectively, were still in charge of what went into production. The aging movie moguls who'd overseen the studio since 1913 lacked the flexibility to adapt to the modern film industry. It's hard to imagine the men who made stars out of the likes of Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford to understand the appeal of a Jerry Lewis or Jane Fonda. In order to inject some youth into the studio, Howard W. Koch was appointed to head of production. 
He was 48, which, while significantly younger than the 91-year-old Zucker or 76-year-old Balaban, he didn't quite have the youthful vitality they'd hoped for, and unsurprisingly, Coach only lasted two years in the role. The Corleone family is thinking of giving up all its interest in the olive oil business, settling Mm -hmm. out here. Now, Mo Green will sell us his share of the casino and the hotel so it can be completely owned by the family. Tom? Hey, Mike, are you sure about that? Mo loves the business. He never said nothing to me about selling. I'll make him an offer he can't refuse. See, Johnny, see, we figure that entertainment will be a big factor in drawing gamblers at the casino, and we hope you'll sign a contract to appear five times a year. Perhaps, uh convince some of your friends in the movies to do the same. We're counting on you. Sure, Mike. I'll do anything for my godfather. You know that. Good. Still hemorrhaging money, Paramount was sold to Gulf and Western Industries Corporation in 1966. Gulf and Western went on a Zucker-like spending spree buying Desilu Productions Desi Arnaz, and Lucille Ball's production company, acquiring their backlot in the process, the former home of the by then, spoiler alert, defunct RKO. With this purchase, they also acquired properties like Star Trek and Mission Impossible. Gulfin Western reinstated the Paramount Television Network and began putting out sitcoms like The Brady Bunch and Love American Style. Gulfin Western's owner, Charles Bludorn hired Robert Evans, an alumnus of Universal, former actor, and up-and-coming producer as the head of production. In addition, Evans was tasked to streamline the company as a whole. The board of directors in 1967 was incredibly indecisive as to what should be done of the slowly dying studio. Gulf and Western considered many options, including breaking up the backlots and production, to be sold separately to the highest bidder. To prevent this from happening, Evans hired filmmaker Mike Nichols to shoot a promo reel for the studio. Evans traveled to New York, the base of Paramount's board of directors, with the promise that if they watched the promo reel and didn't like what they saw, Evans would waive the $300,000 buyout from his contract. The reel showed the board that Evans had truly consolidated the studio and that, quote, the money we spend is going on the screen. The tactic worked, and for the next eight years, Evans would bring the company back from the brink of bankruptcy with films like The Odd Couple, Rosemary's Baby, The Godfather, Chinatown, and Love Story. In 1976, Evans' hand-picked successor, Richard Silbert, failed to meet Bluedorn's expectations, so a new, more television-based team was put in place under Barry Diller. Known as his Killer Dillers, his team consisted of the likes of Jeffrey Katzenberg, future head of DreamWorks, Michael Eisner, future CEO of Disney, and Diller's eventual successor, Don Simpson. While Diller served as CEO, he oversaw the two films that made a young John Travolta an international superstar, Grease and Saturday Night Fever, as well as the first two Indiana Jones films. Television shows like Laverne and Shirley and Cheers found their way onto the airwaves as well. Instead of film, 
Diller spent most of his efforts expanding the neglected television segments of Paramount, trying to catch them up to the other studios that had surged ahead of them back in the 50s. Diller's efforts culminated with the UPN Network, which became the home for a new generation of Star Trek series after the success of the films in the late 70s and 80s had reinvigorated interest in the franchise. Khan, you've got Genesis, but you don't have me. You are going to kill me, Khan. You're going to have to come down here. You're going to have to come down here. I've done far worse than kill you. I've hurt you. And I wish to go on hurting you. I shall leave you as you left me. As you left her. Marooned for all eternity in the center of a dead planet. Buried alive. Buried alive. In the 80s, Paramount focused more on commercial moneymakers and franchises, turning out another batch of Star Trek films, the Indiana Jones franchise, the Friday the 13th franchise, as well as sequels and television spinoffs. Paramount also put out the films that would jumpstart Eddie Murphy's film career, Trading Spaces, Coming to America, and Beverly Hills Cop. Less frequently, the studio would put out the odd film that was considered more artistic, like Academy Award winner Children of a Lesser God or The Accused. Star Trek was a big deal for Paramount. Referred to as the franchise in the 1980s, thanks to its steady revenue streams between the films, books, merchandise, and licensing, Star Trek provided so much of the company's revenue that when visiting the backlot, it was impossible not to be aware of its impact. During the height of Voyager and Deep Space Nine, the nine largest of the studio's 36 sound stages were occupied by a Star Trek vehicle. While popularity would wane by the early 2000s, Star Trek would make yet another comeback in 2009 with a rebooted timeline featuring the show's original cast of characters. A myriad of new television shows followed in 2017, starting with Star Trek Discovery. Charles Bludorn died unexpectedly in 1983. His successor, Martin Davis, unlike Bludorn, was an entertainment veteran. Seeing the revenue and success Gulf and Western was having as a production studio, Davis opted to double down on entertainment, selling the company's non-entertainment holdings to focus all efforts on entertainment, renaming the company Paramount Communications Inc. in the process. Using the money from the sales, Paramount purchased several television networks, as well as a string of theme parks from KECO Entertainment, which he renamed Paramount Parks. He also fired Diller and replaced him with Sherry Lansing, a former mathematics teacher turned actress who, when dissatisfied with her acting career, opted to enter the business side of the film industry. Starting as a script reader, she had worked her way up and was eventually appointed as the president of production of 20th Century Fox in 1980, the first woman to achieve this role at a major studio. Lansing began her work at Paramount in 1982. 
pretty smart, of course. The 1990s were a fruitful era for the studio, under the presidency of Sherry Lansing, giving the studio its most successful streak since the 1930s. During her 12-year tenure, Paramount Pictures would take home three Best Picture Oscars, 1994 for Forrest Gump, 1995 for Braveheart, and 1997 for Titanic, the latter of which was the highest grossing film of all time, not adjusted for inflation, for 12 years. Media conglomerate Viacom purchased and merged with Paramount in 1994 after purchasing 50.1% of the company for the price of $9.75 billion. Five years later, Viacom would also purchase CBS, which had originally been a part of the Paramount family back in the 1920s, but was sold after the stock market crash of 1929. To make things extra convoluted, in 2005, Viacom was split into two companies, Viacom and the CBS Corporation. Sensing the technological change in the wind, Paramount, alongside nine other studios, combined to form the Digital Cinema Initiatives in 2002. Operating under a waiver from the antitrust laws, the studios combined to develop technical standards for the emerging digital cinema film production, the first time in nearly 100 years that a projection system had to be majorly overhauled. DCI was created to, quote, establish and document voluntary specifications for an open architecture for digital cinema that ensures a uniform and high level of technical performance, reliability, and quality control. In layman's terms, everyone wanted to be on the same page with the same tech when digital filmmaking eventually became the norm. In 2005, Paramount acquired the non-animation departments of DreamWorks SKG, a company founded by director Steven Spielberg, former Paramount executive Jeffrey Katzenberg, and David Geffen, SKG. The sale would be overseen on the Paramount side by new CEO Brad Gray. A mere three years later, Spielberg, Geffen, and current president of DreamWorks Stacy Snyder Katzenberg had remained with DreamWorks Animation after the Paramount purchase, would leave Paramount to restart DreamWorks independent of Paramount. How did they get to keep the name? Well, DreamWorks Animation maintained the licensing rights to the name DreamWorks, which they transferred to the new company. Paramount does still have the film rights of the former DreamWorks. Confusing enough for you? iPod. A thousand songs in your pocket. Continuing to be an early adapter, Paramount became the second studio to sell their films through the Apple iTunes Store starting in 2007. Additionally, CEO Brad Gray launched a digital entertainment division of Paramount in anticipation of what was to come. In 2018, Paramount signed a multi-picture film deal with Netflix as part of Viacom's growth strategy, making Paramount the first major studio to do so. At the end of 2019, at the behest of their parent company, National Amusements, 
CBS and Viacom once again merged into a singular company, forming Viacom CBS in August 2019. In December, the newly minted company acquired 49% of Miramax, the company founded by the Weinstein brothers. I don't need to tell you what happened there. Gaining the distribution rights to the studio's 700 film library. Today, Paramount certainly seems to be at the top of their game. In addition to what I've mentioned here today, Paramount has an extensive and impressive history in regards to television, music, and publishing. Through its trials and tribulations in its 108 year history, it is easy to see why Paramount is one of the leaders of the modern film industry and will continue to be in the years to come. I'm wet, I'm cold, there's a fish on my head, and clearly I'm not going to be able to do this on my own. I just wanted to throw some Sonic in there to make myself happy. I've been recording all day, and right now, and I hope you can't hear it, but my neighbors to one side are in a fight, and the neighbors on the other side, the children seem to be beating each other with what sounds like giant hammers. Anyway, I didn't seem to learn with the first three episodes that it's very hard to put 100 years of history of anything into a digestible amount of time. I hope you're still with me. To wrap it up, as always, there will be corresponding images posted on all social media, as well as some recommended viewing in the show notes where you can also find my sources. If a film that piqued your interest didn't make it onto the list, remember that the pre-1948 sound films for Paramount are owned by NBC Universal. so if you can't find them below, there's a decent chance they might be on Peacock. Not an ad, but it could be. Wink wink, NBC. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out to me on social media on Twitter at Tinsel underscore Factory, Instagram at Tinsel Factory Pod, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I do as much research and fact checking as I can for each episode, which I write and produce in the span of about a week. So if I got anything wrong, please let me know and I will correct it in a future episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so others can find it. And share it with your friends. I'm relying on word of mouth for the time being and would appreciate y'all helping a girl out. Next week, as we continue working our way through the histories of the Big Five Studios of Hollywood's Golden Age, we'll be covering MGM, the studio that once boasted that it had, quote, more stars than there are in the heavens. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. Ooh.